to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, and uh, thank you for listening and making commitments to your learning. We hope you are doing well. Uh, this week, it is me, Yvonne Brandenburg, without Jordan. Jordan is at home doing some important stuff, but don't worry, it's not just me. We also have the amazing Ed Durham. Thank you Ed. very much. Hello, Yvonne. How are we doing tonight? Not too bad. Uh, we are, is this, is this our last cardio or do we have one more? Um, we've done a lot so far. <laughs> this was the last originally scheduled. And then we oh. have talked about adding a arrhythmia electrocardiography. Oh, that's right. We did. Which quite frankly, I could easily do a two-parter on that because ECGs <laughs> are complicated. Um, and it's hard to do without pictures, but so I guess you can poll your audience and see if they're interested in hearing me ramble for hours about electrocardiography. (laughs) Well, and maybe that's something, and this is, we can, we can maybe talk outside this recording about it, but maybe we do like, um, like a zoom lecture on it. So you can actually do pictures. So maybe you and I talk and and see because because I agree I think when we're talking about arrhythmia and EKG it really does help having the visual Um, absolutely so yeah so maybe maybe we do that and Um, I like what I like about arrhythmias is that because so many of us veterinary technicians I mean wherever practice you work in you're probably monitoring anesthesia and I'm on the we have the cardio ECG Facebook page. And I would say, I mean, I haven't actually counted them up, but I would say that 80 to 90% of the arrhythmias that people post asking what, what this is Mm -hmm. come from, come from some anesthetic event. Yeah. So if anybody's interested, there is a um, ECG for veterinary technicians, Facebook page that are is moderated by myself and a couple of other cardio vts's and cardio it's cardio ecg oh it's called vet tech ecg slash cardio rounds oh found it all right cool i'm gonna put anybody anybody can post there um and we often we have tons of people who want to come and play and read things. There's a couple of doctors that are members as well. Um, one anesthesiologist and one who is, um, and a couple of boarded cardiologists. So, you know, while we get a lot of opinion, we also get a lot of fact from dip- diplomats. So it's mm-hmm. really helpful. Um, for folks to help work out their ECGs. Um, nice. It's a, yeah, it's we'll, we'll make a, we'll group. put a link in the, in the show notes. Cause I think that would be something that 
obviously if somebody is listening to the, to the cardio series, that seems and like one that they would love it to is be part of. apparently pretty popular because it has 12.5 thousand members. Wow. Yeah. Nice. So we get a, there's a lot of good stuff that goes up, uh, up on there. And like I said, you know, sometimes if it's been a slow day, I'll just post an e- ECG for fun and let everybody read it. Um, for anybody who's listening, if you want to post, I know a lot of this stuff comes, like I said, comes from a- anesthesia and there's a lot of videos of monitors going by, but I'll say if there's any way you can print the ECG and the arrhythmia you're seeing before you post it, it's a lot better. Having those little lines and on the graph mm-hmm. paper make things mm-hmm. a lot better. And if you can tell us what the paper speed is and the calibration, you know how many millimeters per millivolt, it really makes it a lot easier for folks to give you good in- information and good fee- feedback on that stuff. Yeah, that, and that totally so, makes sense. The um, people are interested in ECGs. Yeah, perfect. Cool. Well, I definitely will put that in the show notes because I think that's that's definitely something that if you're into cardio, you probably already know about the Facebook page, but if not, well, now you do. <laughs> right. So, this Or even week, if you just have to monitor anesthesia and you're wondering what's, I know it's not normal, but I yeah. don't know what it is. Like that's, yeah. that's a fair question. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So this week we are talking about DCM, um, so dilated cardiomyopathy, and are we focusing on the nutrition aspect of it or non-nutritional and nutritional? Like what? What's I think how, is, how you want to do this? I think this can be all encompassing. Okay, perfect. Um, cool. So we can try to answer a lot of questions here. And if we get a lot of feedback from people, if those of you listening find that, hey, there's things that I'm curious about and we get enough questions, we we can do a follow-up program. Because I realize that this is an interesting topic. Uh, It's probably wildly controversial as anything to do with nutrition is. And But dilated cardiomyopathy is a well-recognized disease in veterinary patients completely non-related to the new grain-free mm-hmm. portion of it that we've come to rec- recognize in the last cu- couple of years. Yeah. And I remember it, it's, it's, I was gonna say it's fairly new, but it's been probably what, three, four years now that. Yeah. It's only been about, nutrition... well, I'm going to say that it was recognized, I three years max. Um, it was really yeah. like 2018, 2019, where this really came up front. Cause it was right when I was coming back from uh, Ross university right. and leaving the anesthesia, getting back more into the cardiology side of it that I started hearing about it from my VTS friends. So I think we ought to start by defining what actually is dilated cardiomyopathy. What are we really talking about with this disease Mm -hmm. so if i was to ask you what what would you tell a client if they said my dog has dilated cardiomyopathy what does that mean so when i when i talk to clients i i talk to them and i say you know 
the heart, there's the, the muscles in the heart, right? And those are what needs to, they need to squeeze to move the blood. And what happens is um, for various reasons, if those muscles basically get flabby, right? And then they balloon out and it becomes bigger, then they lose that ability to contract the way that they should um, and go see a cardiologist. <laughs> Not a bad like, answer. Like, that's what I got. <laughs> that's actually a pretty reasonable answer. Um, so dilated cardiomyopathy is a disease of the heart muscle. So that is exactly right. The heart is a muscle. It's a spe specialized muscle, right? Cardiac. Mm -hmm. um, myocytes are slightly different than those of your arms, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they're different than the Bring smooth us way muscle. back to A and P and like right, school. Exactly. <laughs> so they are, it's a specialized group of muscle. Um, and you can have various versions of cardiomyopathy. So any cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm just means heart muscle disease. That's okay. simply what it is. And we talked about this in previous podcasts of who gets what diseases, right? So um, mm -hmm. going back to what we affectionately refer to as the rule of Bonagura, if you can pick it up with one hand, it's probably going to be degenerative valve disease. <laughs> if it takes two hands and, or a friend, then it's probably going to be a cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. And dogs it's dilated cardiomyopathy that's what we see um and cocker spaniels are right in the middle you can almost get mm -hmm. them with one hand but you kind of need a second they actually yeah. <laughs> they actually get both right. so that's the easy of way course. to remember right so um while dilated cardiomyopathy is seen in cats it's pretty rare these days and we know that in cats, it is extraordinarily nutritional. The few mm -hmm. cases, well, I'm actually old enough that I can remember back in the 70s when dilated cardiomyopathy was considered one of the common cardiomyopathies you could see in cats. And that oh, was, wow. well, it was before we discovered the link between taurine and DCM yeah. in cats. Right? Oh, wow. Then once once that was discovered, then all the pet food companies started sup supplementing taurine and DCM virtually went away in right. cats. The few times that I've seen it, it's been in cats who are on unusual diets, either by their choice or by the client's choice. Right. Um, it's very rare. I specific, specifically remember a cat who refused to eat cat food. He wanted to eat the dog food. Well, he ended right. up with DCM. He ended up with D DCM. So DCM, mm -hmm. dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, so big dogs, we do, is the primary disease we see in them is dilated cardiomyopathy. They're the dilated form of cardiomyopathy. And the classic presentation on an echocardiogram of a dilated cardiomyopathy heart is a heart that is larger in dimension and has poor contractility. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. People That's definitely will, what I've seen. Yeah. And people will sometimes, so it's a dilated heart. So larger internal dimension, particularly in diastole, but also in systole. 
that doesn't move very well at all. Um, if you remember, I talked about this, that the heart should eject about 50% of its volume on every cycle with dilated cardiomyopathy. We see lower than that. I've seen them down as low as like ejecting more like eight to 10% of their volume. Mm, wow. So we're talking hearts that are barely moving at all. So you can be really extreme. Um, and there's a spectrum of pre presentation. You have the dogs that what they'll refer to as a DCM phenotype, meaning that they are asymptomatic. They're running around the yard doing fine. You do an echo for another reason, or maybe they have a soft murmur. And what you find is um, some people refer to it as occult DCM, meaning there's no signs or symptoms. It's hidden. Mm -hmm. And you've got a heart that is dilated and poorly contracting. One of the misconceptions when people look at a, a heart that has dilated cardiomyopathy on echo, they'll say, oh, and the walls are thin. And that's a, it's a proportionality problem. If mm. you take a heart and you dilate it, the body responds to that by trying to maintain function. So when we get into cardiac physiology, we talk about two different types of hypertrophy. You have concentric hypertrophy and you have eccentric hypertrophy. Okay. So concentric hypertrophy is a heart that gets thicker from the outside in toward the center. And that okay. people would recognize as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And right. dogs and people as well, this is because people get dilated cardiomyopathy also. As the heart dilates, the body or the heart tries to maintain its function. And to do that, you get what's known as eccentric hypertrophy. So okay. as the heart expands out, the myocytes actually get longer trying to compensate for the stretch. If you think about mm. uh, a balloon, the more mm. you blow it up, what happens to the walls? Well, they get thinner and thinner and thinner, right? right. The, the walls of a balloon. So the heart works in a similar fashion, but what happens is the compensation mechanism that keeps the heart functioning is that eccentric hypertrophy. So when we do echo measurements on dogs with dilated cardiomyopathy, their walls actually usually measure normal. They oh. look thin because the ventricles are so dilated. Oh, got it. Okay. Right. So, so hypertrophy. I, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is walls that get thicker toward the center. Dilated cardiomyopathy, walls get thicker to compensate for the expanding outward of the vent ventricle. Wow. Okay. And <sighs> poor hearts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hearts are amazing, right? Yeah. Um, and so then the question becomes, well, what causes it? Well, there's a number of things that can cause dilated cardiomyopathy, one of which is it's idiopathic. We don't know. It's mm. inherited in the breed. So Doberman pinchers are a really good example of that. I feel like um, Dobermans are like the poster child for absolutely. DCM. Like when I think of DCM, I go, Dobermans. <laughs> and, and that's because they are. Yeah. 
they're very op- overrepresented. And often the cause is unrelated to anything that can be identified. It's just mm. part of their genetic makeup. We see it also in other large breed dogs like Mastiffs, Great Danes, the Wolfhounds, you know, the, the giant breed dogs in particular mm-hmm. seem to be predisposed, but also any large breed dog is something that it can manifest in. Um, yeah, I think, well, I think of Goldens, but I, I feel like that's more of like the recent with the dog food and that could be my area, <laughs> you know, like uh, we have it's a probably lot your area here. because yeah. we see, because you do see dilated cardiomyopathy in, in Goldens as a, um, idiopathic con- condition. Mm, okay. It's not as prevalent in that breed as it is in Doberman Pinschers, but it's still absolutely there. One of the things um, I get. Okay. Yeah. And, and as this heart dilates, they lose the ability to maintain cardiac output. And then if folks have listened before, it starts that cascade of fluid retention that mm-hmm. we talked about with heart failure when we did our heart, heart failure session. So that cascade of stimulation of the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system, which causes fluid retention because the kidneys are going, hey, blood pressure is low. We need to do some, right. something about that, right? And it starts this self-perpetuating negative feedback loop that the body retains more fluid, the heart dilates even more, it loses con- contractility, and ultimately it leads to heart failure. Some And with a DCM, um, it could be right-sided, left-sided, or it's both, typically, or is it usually both? It's, it's typically left-sided. Okay. Right? You do see effects on the right side of the heart, but predominantly what causes clinical signs is the left ventricle failure. Now, part of that though is there, and we mentioned this, is the arrhythmogenic form that we see in boxers. That's boxer cardiomyopathy, where they actually start with an arrhythmia and then they develop dilated cardiomyopathy later and that one does start on the right in the right ventricle but that's kind Mm. of an outlier from the most of the cases if you will got it most that's that's a special thing of (laughs) genetic right ventricular cardiomyopathy like boxers want to be their own thing um and so Breeds like the one of the funny things about the Dobermans is they will hide their disease very well. And mm-hmm. we catch it a lot more often now because the Doberman community has understood this disease a lot better. They're very astute. Yeah. Uh, the Doberman breeders have done a good job of trying to eliminate this. Now it's not gone, yeah. but it I can tell you that it is much less prevalent now than it was 20 years ago. Right, yeah, I've definitely, had- I've helped, um, I've helped with some of the OFA certifications and that's always like a big thing that the Doberman, um, yes. breeders check for. Yes. They're like, okay, they're and, and, and is there like a, a certain age that 
that you start to see it or is it because I'm guessing they're not like born with DCM right like it eventually happens right most of them are born with normal hearts and so I'll give you the historical perspective first before Mm -hmm. there was widespread screening we would see Dobermans present in heart failure with DCM Writer, I think the mean was seven years of age. So somewhere between, okay. you know, five, seven, eight. But that was usually when they would come come in. And that makes sense. Okay. And it, it, you, it, it's not as common now because the breeders do screen, but I'll come back to that. It was used to be a very common scenario for the Doberman to come in in fulminant heart failure. When I say fulminant, I mean mm. so bad they're practically blowing peak pink foam out of their nose from the pulmonary edema and we would do echoes on these dogs and they would have uh, if anybody's familiar with fractional shortening a normal fractional shortening is about 25 percent 25 to 30 percent they would come in with fractional shortenings of five so their their contractility was awful and they would have you know our prognosis was you have weeks like you're basically going home and saying goodbye to your pet because you're talking weeks to live. Right. Wow. It was really, really serious. So the, the breeders again, were very, you know, they, they don't want, they don't want that to be the fate right. for their dogs. And what the, what happened is the Dobermans, this is so classic. They, they hide their disease so well. They would be running through the yard playing in the morning and they're practically dead come night nighttime because they're Ugh. they just they decompensate suddenly. And people were just shocked. They were like, but he was perfectly fine this morning. And now you're telling me his heart is so bad, he's only gonna live two to eight weeks. Like, yes, ma'am, that's exactly what we're saying. Oof. So they were it was really Dang. traumatic for for people. So yeah, <laughs> again, kudos to the Doberman people who really got on board with this and they screen often. So the current yeah. recommendation is to start screening Dobermans at about a year and mm-hmm. then every year have an echo and a hol- Holter monitor. A Holter monitor oh, for anybody wow. who doesn't know is it's a 24 hour ECG that the dog can wear home and then we send it off and get it read out by a company and they send us back a report and it, it counts all the heartbeats in 24 hours. And what we're doing is we're looking for ventricular arrhythmias. So, mm-hmm. because sometimes these Dobermans will have, or dogs with DCM, but we're talking about Dobermans right now. They'll have mm-hmm. ventricular arrhythmias that go with the dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, okay. So that's the idiopathic form, right? It just happens mm-hmm. because you're genetically predisposed to it. There's a similar thing in people. Actually, my own grandfather had dilated cardiomyopathy and that's what mm. eventually got him. And there's no, there's it's an idiopathic form. We also know that dilated cardiomyopathy can be induced by hypothyroidism. So mm. that's one reason to have that checked in your dogs that have signs of that. Um, in fact, my own 
cardiologist now had a Rhodesian Ridgeback that when she was a resident, I believe, um, they were just practicing on her dog and they brought it in and she's like, the residents, the senior residents, like this dog has really bad heart disease. She ran a thyroid on him. His thyroid was incredibly low. She started supplementation. Six months later, his heart was normal. He lived for for years. Wow. So hypothyroidism is definitely one of the causes. Um, And then we get, yeah. And then we get, and then I think I mentioned this also, there's a a tachycardia induced form. So if you, Mm. that's kind of where the boxers come in, they get this incessant VTAC. Um, We actually had a, a beagle dog that had a incessant supraventricular tachycardia. So a tachycardia that started up in the atria somewhere. And it would have a heart rate of 300 for, you know, 20 minutes at a go. Well, when we saw the dog, it had a DCM phenotype. So you're talking about a heart that's dilated and enlarged and poor contractility. So there's what's known as the tachycardia induced cardiomyopathy. And frankly, this phenomenon is so predictable that it has been used in the past to induce DCM in the research environment. Wow. Um, and all you have to do is put a pacemaker in a dog and pace them at a heart rate of 200 to 220 for about two weeks and they have DCM. Dang. The yeah. heart's like, I give up. <laughs> it's, it's like, actually, I can't handle it. If you it. think about I'm, it, if I'm you just think gonna about stretch it, to accommodate. <laughs> it's really simple. Think, think about it like this. Like, if you want to know how, how this works, so imagine you go to the gym and you pick up a 10-pound weight, or even a 5-pound weight for that matter, mm-hmm. and you start doing bi- bicep curls as fast as you can. What happens eventually? Your muscles, like, they, there's, they can't do it anymore. Right. You fatigue and you can barely lift your arm. Your arm has gone from right. normal contractility to poor contractility right. just because of the rapid motion for an incessant. Because it doesn't have the recovery time. Right. That it needs. You, wow. You yeah. burn up, you burn up all your, your mitochondrial ATP and it's done. Right. So that's what tachycardia induced hmm. cardiomyopathy looks like. And then we have the nutritional cause. And I am going to qualify everything I say (laughs) at this point on. Right. With the understanding that we don't actually know. And when I say we. It's still super new. When I say we, I'm talking about the people who know more about this than anybody on the planet. (laughs) And I actually know who those people are. (laughs) And if anybody is interested in learning more about this topic, I suggest contact or do a search for um, Tufts University. The Swing School of Veterinary Medicine is by far leading the way on this um, through Dr. Rush, who's a cardiologist, and Dr. Freeman who is a new nutritionist and they really are her in particular is the 
person who probably knows more about this disease than anybody. And all the cardiology people are looking to her because that's her thing. And she right. works very, very closely with the cardiology service at Tufts. So they've got all the latest and greatest information. So there is absolutely an association with um, what has been reported to the FDA as what they call bag diet. So that's the boutique, exotic, and grain-free. And what first triggered people that something was amiss here was that you were seeing dog breeds presenting with severe dilated cardiomyopathy that were atypical for the disease. So cavalier, mm. right? This is how I first heard about it is um, cardio v BTS, as I know in the Northeast, we're talking about there are cases like these people coming in and these dogs have full on crazy dilated cardiomyopathy. Mm. And there's no good reason. Like they're not hyperthyroid. They're not a breed associated with that. So the people started investigating and they started saying, well, cause you know, a good, any part of a good history is what do you feed? Like yeah. you want to know what they're feeding their dog. And so they started making this link between the grain-free diets and dilated cardiomyopathy. The other yeah, thing- I think I remember when they started it, they were looking for toxins or something in the environment. All I remember it was, it was such a huge deal. And then when they yeah. started realizing, uh-oh, <laughs> er <laughs> we and, have this link now. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the question- that you have to ask is, well, how did this get started? Well, I, I don't know for sure. And maybe there's people out there who are really into nutrition who can, you know, chime in on this, but here's what my impression has been is that with the recognition of gluten in the human diet and people having mm feeling poorly and then they cut out gluten and suddenly they feel a whole lot better. The pet food companies picked up on that as a mark marketing ploy. Yeah. Added to that, you have the allergic dermatitis that is so often associated with diet in dogs. Right. And so those two things sort of came together at the same moment and we started getting diets that were going to be better for the skin. And then people saw a marketing opportunity to say, Hey, grain free. It's good for you. It's good for your dog. That's the impression I have from being out in the world. And like I said, there might be lis listeners who um, are in nutrition. You know, they may have a VTS in nutrition and they've got a better sense of, of these things, but that's, the way it appears to me at this time. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, for me, I, I worked in a pet store for a long time, um, that was associated with the general practice I was at and it definitely was a marketing thing, right? Like everybody wanted to put grain free because it was, you know, it was, it was better. And it was like, right. well, why is it better? And you even saw it like the commercials where it talked about, well, 
you know, the byproducts and the grains. And it was like, well, those are bad and, and non-grains are good. And it was, it really was a way to distinguish themselves and push the market. And thankfully we have nutritionists, veterinary nutritionists and veterinary VTSs and nutrition who are pushing back on it. And I think. Well, the other thing we have are four pet food companies who invest in actual research on pet nutrition. And if you look at the FDA website, um, they actually have, it's it's fda.gov slash animal veterinary slash outbreaks and advisories slash FDA investigation, potential link between certain diets and dilated cardiomyopathy, right? So they list the foods that are most associated or were most reported when this advisory document came out in 2019. Um, And Mm -hmm. none of the, none of the big four brands made the top 10. Yeah. So none of the big four diets, meaning Purina, Hills, Royal Canaan and uh, Imes. Like they actually spend the time and money to do the research. And um, so we were fortunate that we have those two. But I, f- I feel for clients who think I'm going to do the best for my dog. I'm going to buy this right. Cadillac food. And then they got, they got slammed with this thing that no one saw coming. Right? right. If you would ask, I'm sure if you would ask veterinary c- cardiologists when grain-free diets were first coming on the market, they would have said, nah, shouldn't make any difference at all. Right. No one predicted this coming. So you can't blame anybody. It just is a thing that we now have to contend with. Now, yeah. where are we today? So the bottom line on this is we don't know. We honestly don't know what it is. There's a couple of things we do know. Um, so there's a couple of proteins, taurine and L-carnitine that have been associated with heart disease in dogs in the past. Uh, Cocker spaniels in particular do have a taurine deficient D- DCM that they will get. And they're mm. still, it's still unclear as to whether it is poor usage of the taurine that is present in their diet. Mm. Or, the, or you know, our lack of ability to synthesize it. So, cats cats cannot synthesize taurine, but dogs can. Right, um, and particularly the English cock, cocker spaniels seem to present more often with a taurine deficient dilated cardiomyopathy, and we know this because when you supplement it, they improve. Right. There is a family of boxers that was associated with a um, L-carnitine deficiency that appears to be just one lineage of boxers. People still still supplement it. Um, The benefit is still unclear. There is 
we will often put patients on taurine if they have dilated cardiomyopathy because it can't hurt. It doesn't actually harm them to take it. Mm. And it may actually help. And again, it's a question of, are they not utilizing what's there? Or is it just that they don't have enough in, in their diet or enough of the build, building blocks? So hmm. it's a pretty inexpensive sup, supplement to add. Right. So we can do that. Yeah. Um, the group at Tufts and several other groups or other researchers have looked at those known players and in the, the grain-free diets and taurine does not seem to be Im implicated, nor does a lack of L-carnitine. That being said, in just this year, um, August of this year, the group at Tufts published a paper. Um, this is an op open source paper. So it's in scientific reports. This is free to anybody. Um, it is investigation of diets associated with dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs using foodomics analysis. Foodomics is a new word to me, but it's apparently a new nutrition. It's a thing. This paper actually is pretty nicely done. I will say um, it has a ton of great information in it. I will try and summarize it quickly, but I do recommend that if this is something you're interested in, go and read more. And it is open source, so you can get the entire paper. So that, that, that'll be in the show notes. Um, and what they did is they separated the diets into two groups. One that had equal to or more pulses. So pulses are, are the legumes, peas, lentils, mm. pea, chickpeas, like they're your, your, your legumes. And okay. then diets that did not have that, diets that were more um, corn, wheat, right? They may have had mm -hmm. one, one pulse in them, but not more than three. So it was the three pulses versus less than three pulses, okay? Okay. And what they found in real, real brief here is that two, two different things popped up. Um, one is that, there were a lot of chemicals, not naturally occurring chemicals, naturally occurring things associated with the, the more than three pulses diet that showed up in higher concentrations than in the non-pulse diets, what they call the, you know, the less than three pulse diet. Oh, so you have the, okay. these other plant, these other plant things that, that showed up with, you know, um, really fun names, but they're, you know, various compounds right. of amino acids and, and xenobiotics, plant compounds that appeared in higher con concentrations. And so as they started digging into this a little bit more, they came up with two different hypotheses of how these diets might be impacting our patients. One of them is that some of these compounds that appeared in higher concentrations in the 
three or more pulse diets that have been reported to the FDA. These compounds are known through human research to interfere with the utilization of L-carnitine by the heart muscle cells themselves. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so that's one possible explanation is that the- So it's a, the, like it's an L-carnitine deficiency of the heart, but not necessarily in the diet because right. it's not it, because going the where heart, it needs to go. Because the, heart, wow. the okay. heart is having a difficult time utilizing the L-carnitine that's available. Wow. Okay. okay. The other side of that coin is that these compounds might be directly toxic to the heart. And there's some of them that appear that they know, again, looking at the human biophysiology, that it actually is directly toxic to the heart. And uh, this, and you may have heard this already, that the number one ingredient that is overrepresented in the diets that have the biggest impact is peas. Mm. Now, does that yeah. mean that, you know, if you have peas with, with dinner tonight, your heart's going to blow up? No. But if you <laughs> ate peas every day for two or three meals every day for over a period of time, they have seen in humans that these compounds can be like build up and then be yes. become wow yes okay. that they can be bad for the heart so that's kind of where the latest research is and then you know people ask the question and it's a very reasonable question well how do you know it's the diet maybe it's something else maybe it's inherited maybe it's thyroid how, how are you sure that the diet is causing this that's not an unfair question right but here's the answer when we take them off of their grain-free diet and put them on a tra- traditional diet from one of the big four companies or from um, that is a grain-inclusive diet that doesn't have the, the pulses, the three you know pulses, the, the lentils and the peas and whatnot, their hearts improve. Right. So it's easy to say this could be diet liberated, right? I can rule right. out things like, like hypothyroidism quick quickly like i can do a blood blood test done um and that's not to say that it's going to fix all the dcms in the world right because we had dcm well before we had the, the nutritional aspect of it but if we have a dog that comes in to our clinic and they have evidence of mild dilation and systolic dysfunction, and they're on a grain-free diet, then we recommend they come off of that grain-free diet. Or if they need a grain-free diet because they do have some allergy to wheat, it happens. Mm -hmm. Pick one of the big four diets. Pick one that comes from the The prescription diets that haven't been linked hasn't been linked it's not because we like them better it's because (laughs) they haven't been reported to be linked yeah so and that's that's the key right is this is not about liking or disliking any particular diet this is about what's been reported to be linked to and and kudos to the fda for actually presenting us with 
a platform to to do this yeah with. i know um, that was one of the big things because in internal medicine you know there are diets that we prescribe that are quote unquote grain free. And so there was this freak out moment where everybody was like, but it's working to control my, you know, vomiting and diarrhea or the skin or the, whatever we put them on that diet for. And we were like, well, hold on (laughs) before we go completely crazy. None of the big four have been linked with it. And 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 here's the, here's the information on it. So what we tell clients is it's hard. Well, no, what we tell clients is if you have a compelling reason for your dog to be on a grain-free diet because of a, a legitimately diagnosed allergy done, say, at a dermatologist, right? You mm-hmm. know, it's not a guess, right? Mm-hmm. Then, then pick a grain-free diet that hasn't been highly re- reported. Right. Okay. Yep. And then- and then monitor closely. Maybe that dog gets an echo every, every year. If they have changes, then they get an right. echo every six, six months. Um, and so while grain-free diets can safely be used, some of them are more reported than others. And mm-hmm. I recommend that if you want to know what those diets are, you look at the um, F- FDA web- website. It really has the best information um and they are continuing to collect data vet veterinarians who have cases that they suspect can still report those through um the web through the fda and they are keeping track of this stuff uh, because they do have guidelines for for pet pet foods so that's sort of the nutritional aspect of it and again the bottom line is we don't actually know RPs toxic to dogs. No one knows. They didn't, you know, the, the researchers from Tufts are very clear to say these are the directions we're being pointed. More research is warranted. We don't have an answer yet, but this mm-hmm. is what where we're seeing evidence to support what is going on based on a lot of different in, information. So that's kind of where we are. With DCM then, the question is, what do you do about it? So there's actually a a very cool study that was done with Dobermans called the PROTECT trial, and you won't have any trouble finding it. And what it did is it looked at, is it beneficial to give Dobermans who are not in heart failure hemobendin once they show signs of decreased contractility? Turns out the answer is yes. There's a clear benefit from early hemobendin once a dog shows, uh, the, the DCM dog shows signs of dilation or de- decreased function. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons for the screening, right? If you screen your dog, your Doberman one year, and his heart is perfectly normal, you come back the next year, and now his heart is slightly dilated and his contractility has gone down mildly, well, then that's the time to start the epimobendin because they looked at two groups of dogs at that point, and the ones who got pimo 
lived longer. Mm. Not a hard study to say that's a good idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So that's kind of where we are with the with these guys is um, if you can identify another cause, they're hy hypothyroid or they have um, an arrhythmia you can control or they have a, a diet that can be changed. Right. You're going to do those things in the meantime, supporting them with Pimo Bendin is a good, good plan. Right. Because it does help the heart feel, feel better, re remodel and do, do better. And it is a way of, if you can find a treatable cause, you can actually get these guys back to normal and maybe come off the Pimo Bendin. If they're mm -hmm. a breed that is predisposed to the disease in the first place, well, okay, they're predisposed to the disease in the first place and you get them on their PMO as soon as they start to show changes and they, they do better. Will they have concurrent valve disease? Occasionally. Do they mm -hmm. develop murmurs? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, what happens with the murmurs is that we see the left ventricle will dilate. And when it does, it stretches the ring, the mitral annulus, that holds the mit mitral valve in place. And basically it pulls the valve leaflets apart. So, oh, they do, so, so they develop a murmur because now the valve leaflets can't coapt properly and you get mitral regurgitation. Um, not to mention the fact that the body is retaining fluid because it wants to keep the blood pressure up. You're not able to move the blood forward. We talked about this in the congestive heart failure, right? Anytime you can't, maintain cardiac output in the face of normal to enhanced pre preload you're mm -hmm. in heart, heart failure and so they will develop pulmonary edema from this um treatment is mm. really straightforward it's just like everything else we've talked about they're going to get pimo bended to increase their contractility they're going to get a diuretic to clear their lungs out right they're going to get something to control arrhythmias if they have them. They're going to get um, an angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor so they can manage the fluid re re retention. So if all those basic fundamentals of treating heart failure come back in, into play. It's just that mm. the cause is different. Instead of having a valve that leaks that causes the heart to retain volume and and develop pulmonary edema. Now we have a failure of the muscle, which then the body retains fluid and you develop pulmonary edema. Right. Nice. So that kind of covers the gamut since we've already talked about treatment of right. congestive heart, heart failure. Um, in, in when we're talking to clients about it, I mean, I guess you're, you're, you're going to go through and talk about, you know, the diet. And if it's, if they're not on one of the, the big diets, right. Then you may not have to worry about it so much. And then it's, it's the follow-up of, you know, how frequently are we doing the echoes and making sure we stay on medications as directed. Cause you know, yeah, that's so always fun. <laughs> So it's actually pretty straightforward. If you're a breed that's predisposed, you get an echo every year. If you're a breed that's predisposed and you show signs of dilated cardiomyopathy, 
you get pibobendine and an echo every six, six months. When you mm -hmm. go into heart failure, you get an echo every six, six months or more often as warranted by clinical signs. Right. And that's really what it comes, comes down, down to. That makes sense. And um, then, I mean, you guys usually, I'm trying to think of like blood work. I mean, I, I feel like I see a lot of like kidney checks if you're on diuretics. Absolutely. But otherwise it's just like a standard yearly lab work that I feel like is usually done at like your primary vet. Absolutely. And just make sure, but I, yeah, but because I feel like otherwise lose... there's not real follow-up cardio lab work. Yeah. The, well, what you're really doing is you're monitoring kidney function. So right. BUN creatinine and elect electrolytes because furosemide is a potassium wasting drug. And right. they can become hypokalemic if you're not careful. Um, and you can also begin to lose kidney function because of the diuretics. So, right. um, yes, BUN and creatinine electrolytes every six, th three to six months, depending on how much you're, you're getting. Right. Um, we check blood pressures on everybody. If they have arrhythmias, we're going to manage right. arrhythmia. We're going to check function. And it's amazing because some of these dogs will come in with pretty poor function. You get them on Pima Bended and they actually improve. Yeah. They do well for a while. And then eventually they decompensate and they don't do well. Right. Yeah. I, Pima Bendin is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's one of those miracle drugs. <laughs> it is. And I get very sad when it's on back order. <laughs> Yeah, um, we're very lucky that we get a we get a, a generic as well that works yeah. just as good as the brand name does. So we're actually pretty happy. Yeah, I, I remember before there was really the the generic and it was just the brand name and that was hard. So we were very excited when we started being able to get the, the generic as well. Yeah, it makes a huge difference when they get it on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I guess I would say when you're talking with clients because of um, because of the back order issues that happens a lot of times, is just making sure that clients understand the actual dose, right? Because if you're having to switch between like a 1.25, a 2.5, a 5, or a 10, and it's like, okay, but you have to understand that it's not a half a tablet with all of them. <laughs> right. Because like, you know, sometimes clients don't quite get that. Um, and so for us, that's a really important part of like communicating with a client is making sure they understand. Hopefully they understand the milligram, but if there is a change in the tablet size of the dose of that tablet, just making sure that they really understand this is a change in, how do I say this, a volume of tablet, but it's not a change in the actual dose. Exactly. Um, so, you know, and these things, that's seem, sometimes hard for them. It is. And these things seem obvious to us, but they are not to the client. No. 
That's and, math. And some people just can't do math. <laughs> and I, you know, I have to remind the young technicians I work with all the time because they get so frustrated that people, mm. they just don't know any better. It's like, but you don't, you know, you do this every day. Like this yeah. guy's a lawyer, you know, he doesn't right? do medical math. <laughs> Right. If you need to know about the latest court case on such and such, you know, speeding, he probably yep. knows. Like, you got to remember, but, people have different yeah. areas of expertise. And, you know, yeah. my my biggest problem is that so many of our clients are aged and they're doing yeah. good to get their own meds in sometimes. Ne- never mind the dog or the cat. <laughs> yeah, this uh, yes that is very very true yeah <laughs> um so you know my my i guess my final word for people is you know if you've got a dog that's a large breed dog it's actually not a bad idea to have an echo done if they're doing anything weird or different like oh he doesn't want to exercise like he used to or you know, or you're mm. on a grain-free diet, man, if you're on a grain-free diet right now, um, or your pet's on a grain-free diet, go get them checked. Just go get an yeah. echo, make sure they're okay. Um, you know, again, it's not that you can't feed the grain-free diets or feed the diets that, you know, keep your dog's allergy under control. But if you're going to just know, just, you know, yeah. it, my favorite, one of my favorite lines is information changes situations. Mm. If you just go check it out and you know, then maybe you can make an adjustment before you and your family have to make a really hard decision. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, it, it's definitely that ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I mean, you know, I, I think that's one thing that we've talked about a lot during this series is obviously the earlier you can catch things, right. The, the easier it is to either one potentially reverse it, right. Or two, at least make it. So we stop the progress and you get that quality of life for longer. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's, if you're working in a general practice or you're not working in cardio, it's not a bad thing to recommend, a consult with a cardiologist. Like it's, you know, yes, unfortunately you guys are booked out (laughs) sometimes months in advance, but honestly, like if, if your pet's not dying or in heart failure, then it's okay to wait those months most of the times. Right. And just be like, okay, we're just going to check it out. Hopefully that means I've got either yearly checkups or every couple of years or just come back if there's a problem versus, you know, coming in and heart failure and now we're struggling to get things under control. And, you know, we're talking weeks instead of potentially years. Right. So I think, you know. Well, and it's, it's, I know it's true of other disciplines as well, but since we have, chemobendin it has been shown to increase the symptom free period aka keep you out of heart failure longer just doing a simple echo it might be expensive but it's non-invasive 
and yeah. it yields a ton of information. If you've got a dog that's on a grain-free diet or is chronically hypothyroid and you can't get them controlled and they're a large breed dog, getting an echo is not a bad thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. All right. Well, do we, uh, do we have, I mean, I, I guess we kind of had a tip of the week unless you have a different tip of the week. No, I think, I think that's my tip, my tip of the week. <laughs> it's the tip of the week. If your dog on a grain-free diet, go get an echo, even if they don't have a murmur, right? So that's right. something to remember is that you can have DCM and not have a murmur. Very, yeah. very important. So you can you have, have a multitude of heart disease without a murmur. So, yeah. so actually, one thing I do want to say, and I, I touched on it quickly, was that if your pet is on a grain-free diet and one of those that's been associated with DCM, um, and you take them off of the grain-free diet, it does take about six months for their heart to remodel back to nor normal. Mm. It will, if that's the cause, but it right. does take some period of time. That makes sense. So be prepared for right. long haul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the good nice. news is that it does seem to be re reversible by with with a diet change. So you know that's nice. a very positive aspect of this. That's awesome. And now for the question of the week. All right. So question of the week. We're gonna because this is technically our last in our cardio series. And and by the way, Ed, thank you so much for <laughs> for diving into this with Jordan and I. And and thank you for kind of being our co-pilots when one of us wasn't here so a lot of fun to kind of, <laughs> to kind of go along with that uh what subjects would you guys want here that's cardio related that maybe we can uh convince ed to come back and and talk about because you know there's always good ones so let us know what what you want to hear about yeah that's a good one <laughs> that's a good one I right, encourage, well, strongly encourage everybody to check out the show notes, particularly if you're interested in the nutritional aspect of dilated cardiomyopathy, because it is something that's new. It is mm -hmm. something that is potentially re reversible. So that's actually yeah. a really good thing. Um, and there's information out there. Uh, I will, I, you know, I meant to say this earlier and I apologize, but I just did a quick search on the internet for information regarding this. And other than the Tufts group paper of August of this year and FDA's report, I think it was April last year. Um, a lot of what you find is a couple years old. So yeah. I'm a big YouTube, YouTube guy. I really like to, <laughs> Like I, I listen to stuff on YouTube when I drive a lot. So I did a quick YouTube search and I think the newest thing I found was like six months old. Almost mm. everything on here is a couple of years old, a year or two years. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I and I will say that I'm wondering I, how much uh, COVID plays into that. 
well but, i feel like everybody is a little overwhelmed with everything yeah else. but but, but people people still you know can make videos and yeah what have you so that's not um i'm not gonna blame covid for that one sorry <laughs> um but anyway so there's there's not a lot of of good information out there right now so mm. if you're looking for it that's what i was able to find and um even places like aha uh they're what they're doing is they're posting information from the USDA website or from um, the the Tufts group. So those are going to be your best your best sources right now. Again, the bottom line is we don't have an exact answer. Yeah, and I and I know that people are still working on it, um, and part of that is having to do the cases. Um, so. And I think getting the word out there, I think, is 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 a big part and, of that, too. And folks, let me just say, please do not bombard Yvonne and Jordan with hate <laughs> mail because people are very passionate about what they feed their their pets. Oh, anybody so, listening to this already knows that Jordan and I have very strong opinions about food, so it's totally fine. <laughs> okay. No, we talk, we usually talk the big three, but I'll, I'll include the big four in this conversation for sure. Okay. Um, so no, no, <laughs> no, they don't, Jordan and I have tough skins when it comes to food related subjects because we work in internal medicine and it's something we deal with a lot. <laughs> I just don't want you to get any hate mail because of me. No, 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 no. It's fine. We didn't call anybody out. <laughs> no, that's because there's no one to call out. You know, right. people are all trying to do their very best. So, right. And, and that's, I think that's something too, to, to kind of keep in mind. And I, and I think the veterinary community does, but sometimes clients don't is none of these, none of these companies that made this food produced a food that intentionally caused DCM, right? Like nobody was like, Ooh, I'm going to leave something out or I'm going to add something in that's going to harm right. a, a pet. Absolutely. Like that was never any intention. So not. I think, I think, you know, and we, and I think as the veterinary community, we did a good job of not vilifying anyone, but nope. we did say, Hey, look, the evidence points to, these are the ones that aren't having problems. <laughs> so how about you go towards that direction? So yeah, very no, good. No, no, we're good. All right. Well, if you guys uh, want to find Ed a little bit more, I think um, you're part of that, the Facebook group. Um, you're definitely part of the uh, Cardio VTS Academy. Yep. And I still have my Phoenix VTS on Facebook web or site up where I put a lot of my um, le lectures. They're not oh. videos. It's all pictures of my slides from my, my talks. Oh, um, you'll have to give us the link. And so we can, if anybody wants to find you, they can find you there too. So. It's just, if you just search for Phoenix, V is as in veterinary technician specialist, VTS, you'll find my, my you. Facebook page. <laughs> Perfect. That's me. Cool. Maybe awesome. someday I'll get brave enough to start putting up videos. I guess if you're listening to this and you're interested in actually seeing me do like 10, 10 minute videos on a topic of like, you know, really narrowed focus topic for 10 minutes 
let me know or let Yvonne know and she'll let me know and maybe yeah. that'll ha happen. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Ed. Um, we're getting, this is December of 2021. So the information about the nutrition stuff is very in current. lieu of it being December, 2021, right? <laughs> yeah, this is only, um, so this, if you're listening this, way this in the future. This is only four months old. <laughs> right. So, um, all right, we will, thank you. Thank you, Ed. I know we haven't said it enough times, but really sincerely, thank you. I know everybody's really enjoyed the series. Um, so we appreciate that you were on and, um, let us know if you guys have any questions. Um, I, I, I know how to get a hold of Ed, so I can always forward things to him if you guys have questions and then, uh, yeah, look him up on Facebook. You'll, you'll find him. Harass him at a conference because he goes to many of them. <laughs> so, all right, guys. Well, have a wonderful week. Keep getting your learn on. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.